You've heard the headlines. Get some perspective now with Bruce St. James and Pamela Hughes. Good morning and a happy Monday to you. Wow. Next week, next Wednesday to be exact, Trump comes back to Phoenix. The lead. That's right. The president coming back to the Valley of the Sun. Commander-in-Chief has visited Arizona several times since being elected. And you could expect to see him here several more times this year as the demographics of our state continue to change, with some saying it's up for grabs this election season. So next Wednesday, February 19th is the date, and uh, the, the Trump rally will be held at the Arizona Veterans Memorial Coliseum, literally the madhouse on McDowell possibly becoming more of a madhouse. Yeah, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the madhouse on McDowell fares for this and what kind of protesters show up in the wake of the impeachment Mm. trial, hearing everything being over and done. We can look back to as soon as the president was elected, you know, he came to uh, Phoenix Convention Center. I think it was, you know, what, 2017, August of 2017. I was down there. I went and and interviewed people and talked to folks on both sides. And you had a lot of uh, video coverage and news coverage of that event because protesters clashed with those Ooh. that attended the the rally. Is that the one where the guy got shot in yes. the private parts with a that smoke grenade or whatever? Was it? Or rubber bullet? Yeah, yeah that was that one. Yeah, as soon as one. you say, you know, the protesters, you're like, oh, that guy! That oh, that's remember? the one! Nobody wants to be that person. One in the private. But I don't think that that will be the case at the Madhouse on McDowell, oh. because the president has been here several times since then, and they've done a good job of keeping Trump supporters and Trump protesters away from one another. There's a lot of space down there. I think that they're going to do a good job of it. But again, it is next Wednesday. Wednesday. Uh, it's the event starts at seven o'clock, but the doors for general admission are open at three three o'clock. And I would expect I would expect there to be a a, a pretty strong yeah. showing. And and this is where the the fair is held. So you, obviously you know there's a, there's a lot of space, if yeah. nothing else, uh, parking lot, etc. And and space. But it'll be interesting because the the last time he was here, it was out at Mesa Gateway Airport, right? And you can. You can control an airport a little bit, maybe better than you can this. So will this lend itself to more protesters, people being able to get inside, quote, the perimeter, as opposed to the airport hangar where they kind of kept them separated by quite some distance? I don't know. Yeah, I, I think I think they'll they'll be a, a they'll they'll do a good job of that. Um, I, I would expect it to be more like the airport and less like the convention center. But we. We believe that the president is going to be making several trips to Arizona this year. And last week, we talked to Chuck Coughlin, who is the president of High Ground Consultants. He's Mm -hmm. a Republican strategist, for, for lack of a better term. And we were talking to him in the wake of the State of the Union speech and the debacle that was the Iowa caucus. And what does this mean for the president, specifically here in Arizona and the race that we have in Arizona for our Senate seat between Senator Martha McSally and uh, Mark Kelly? Here's what Chuck Coughlin had to say about all that. He's going to be out here, people. Tr- Trump is. Trump's going to be out here and he's going to be talking. 
talking about this economic message, and he's going to be talking about team sport. Hey, I got a gal on my team here. Yep. We've got, we know what these teams look like. That team looks like Team Pelosi and the and the socialists. And so we're going to see him. We're going to see a lot of him. We saw him talk about the Tuskegee Airmen and his son, who is from Arizona. We had the Mueller family that was there last night. We're going to see more of that. I mean, he's going to be out here, people. And Kelly's been running this sort of, you know, 100,000-foot view campaign and yeah. staying above the fray. Good for him. Well, is he going to be able to maintain that as the as the burners get heated up in this election? We also have some of the um, uh, registration numbers, registered voter numbers in the state of Arizona, which shows, m- maybe to Chuck's point, how competitive Arizona is and is becoming when you look at new registered voters and what party, or dare I say what party they're not, registering for. Right. So when you take a look at the state as a whole, between October and December, this is really when the impeachment inquiry, the whistleblower report, all of this started heating up politically. Arizona added 50,000 registered voters between October and December. Now, if you're looking at Maricopa County in particular, right now, about 35% of voters registered in Maricopa County are Republican. 34% independent and 30 percent Democrat. Now, you have to win Maricopa County in order to win Arizona. If I remember correctly, Maricopa County is about 60 percent of all voters in the state of Arizona. So, So, So as goes Maricopa County, so goes the state of Arizona. So when you look at it, who is expanding the tent, so to speak, in Maricopa County? Which party Okay. Is expanding and getting more voters. Republicans, Democrats, and I also have to throw like independent. Those that don't subscribe to either party. Here's where it gets really interesting. If you're looking from November of 2016, mm-hmm. so when the last election, presidential election was held, to January of this year, in Maricopa County, Republicans added roughly 73,000 registered voters. Okay. Democrats added 106,000 registered voters. Hmm. Pretty sizable difference there. That's a different thing. And independents are also a huge number. Again, knowing in Arizona that independents are second only to Republicans and ahead of Democrats when you look at voter reg. Year over year, if you're looking from January of last year to January of this year, you have Republicans that, you know, voter registration increased 3.9% for Republicans. It increased 4.8%. Democrats. This is over the entire state. So it shows that it's slow, but there is this move towards Arizona becoming purple. And since we're no longer becoming this foregone conclusion of a Republican state, it means we're up for grabs and it means you're going to see more candidates visit here because they have to make their case, which I think is good. Yeah, I mean, the flip side is the constant barrage you're going to get. But this is also not just about president, because Trump is here to support Martha McSally in her Senate race because um, she's being out fundraised like three to one, I think, the last number I saw. It's not even close by by Mark Kelly. And that in the polling data, it's pretty darn close. And she is the sitting senator. But... 
I just think, you know, you think about Martha McSally, the, the corner that she has painted herself into, whether on purpose or not, is she lost to Kirsten Cinema because of Repub- registered Republican voters who voted for Doug Ducey for governor, but voted for Kirsten Cinema for senator. That's how she lost. She lost by those that split their vote. So is being on stage at a Trump rally by defending everything Trump does publicly, does that bring any more of those split voters or independent voters to her? Like you said, how is it growing the tent? How, how are more people going to show up? Now, when you're taking a look at Arizona in specific counties, like I laid out for you, from November of the last election we held in 2016 to January of this year, Democrats have added a sizable number of registered voters in the state in uh, Maricopa County compared to Republicans. But but that's not how every county in Arizona is faring. You go up to Mojave County. And Republicans have added well over 10,000 new registered voters there, and they've lost. They lost 130 Democratic registrations in Mojave County. Mm. So it's interesting just to see how Arizona is changing. The state is not monolithic. No, But but the reason why I talk about Maricopa County so much, not just because I know that (laughs) that's who's listening to us, but also it's where Phoenix is. I mean, it's the the largest city in the state of Arizona. You've got to win this county in order to win the state. So that's why there's so much attention given to us here. But you're also seeing this divide. And we're not unique in Arizona. Oh, no. That you are having the city centers, the 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 rural versus yeah versus rural, and that those are certainly headed in divergent um, paths when it comes to things like voter registration and voter participation. That the cities are moving more towards D's and independence, the rural areas moving more towards R. So it really just comes down to a numbers game. So what is your state all about? And again, in Arizona. Uh, if you can't carry the cities, i.e. Phoenix and Tucson, there aren't enough rural areas to make up the difference, for lack of better terms. So uh, we shall see. Again, next Wednesday, Trump will be here at the Veterans Memorial Coliseum. Uh, and uh, uh, the excitement starts at three, Pamela. We'll just put it that way. The Phoenix City Council has a new plan, a new plan to make it safer to walk around. Will it? Will it work? Through St. James and Pamela Hughes. I see what you did there. We're talking about being a pedestrian in Phoenix. Knowing that we are one of the most dangerous cities in the entire country to be a pedestrian, to walk on sidewalks, crosswalks, etc. So the Phoenix City Council has come up with a bit of a proposal that they think might make it safer. But will it? Okay, so this new proposal that uh, is going to go before the council on Wednesday Wednesday. says that um, you would have to give, you being Phoenix police, would have to give someone who's jaywalking a ticket the first time you see them jaywalking. Mm -mm. Mandatory ticket 
no warnings. Now, right now, officers have a lot of discretion. I mean, I, I, I kind of see it as they have pretty much discretion with everything that they can under state statute or under city statute, they can issue you a warning the first time they see you jaywalking. Hey, get back up on the sidewalk, wait for the cross, you know, the, the signs to change. <laughs> they're going to get on the little walkie-talkie thing. I you see like, you. Like, hey, you in the, the blue, get back on the curb. But this, under this new proposed rule, the city um, could give you a, a ticket on the first offense, which would cost you up to 250 bucks. Second offense could be 2500 bucks. Boy, that's a heck mm. of a jump. I don't understand why this is necessary. And explain to me what I'm missing here, Bruce, because I'm probably missing something. Cops can already give you a ticket on, on the first offense. Right. It's they up can, to the police officer's discretion. So they can ticket you. They don't have to ticket you. This is saying it's mandated. Is that what we're going on the, on the city's statute? Well, but, and here's what I don't understand. I'm confused. Well, I'm, and I'm right there with you. Because if I understand correctly, and from my experience in writing, doing ride-alongs, it is the officer's discretion at all times as to whether or not they warn, ticket, arrest, whatever. The officer has that discretion, and that they they can, there's not like mandatory minimum sentences that judges have to go by. So, from what we have seen, and we heard this before from some of our friends that are in law enforcement, that if you are a Phoenix City police officer, you're driving around right now in the squad car. You're in the white and blue, right? Moving around. Normally, what you are doing as a patrol officer is you are responding from call to call to call. You go from 911 call to what, 411, you know, whatever it is. You're just going from call to call to call. You're not standing on a street corner waiting to ticket jaywalkers. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, we don't, I say we, the police officers don't have that kind of time. So what does this solve? I think what they're trying to do is solve what you kind of led the segment with, how Arizona has some of the deadliest streets when it comes to pedestrians. And cutting back on the fatalities of that would be a really good thing. But... Is it the pedestrian's fault? Is it the driver's fault? I think you've got blame to go around. Sure. And I'm like, what I'm confused about this, and again, it might be an ignorant question, so feel free to check me on it. But city police can off, can can write you a ticket or offer you a warning under either state statute or city statute. And they apparently write more tickets under the state statute than the city statute. I don't understand what. When do you determine if a ticket's under the state statute or under the city statute? Well, and, and okay, so I'm going to say it so that police officers don't have to. If you're going to make it so darn complicated, they're just going to look the other way. You think so? They're going to say, this isn't worth it. Because so you think they're going to, okay, so you think that this could backfire yes. and actually yes. lead to fewer tickets being because if an officer, more? Because if an officer thinks you, again, that you jaywalked but they know they can't write you a warning for it that they're gonna have to cite you will that rise to the will 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 they then say it's not worth going down that path i don't know i i honestly don't know i don't know as many officers as you do to have a perspective on that i I do know that like cities have different vibes to them different rules to them 
like I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, and you know if you're if you're going to like a Steelers game or yeah. uh, a Penguins game or a Pirates game, whatever it may be, people jaywalk like it's their business. Right, you're down in like the Strip District. People cross the street all the time, everywhere along because you because it's just kind of known that you're not going to get a ticket for it. Like you know what I mean? Like they, don't, they, they got better things you to do there, right? Exactly. Okay? Um, I, I do know that when I went to ASU <clears throat> a couple of years ago. That there was a perception, whether it, it was real or not, the perception among a lot of students was you don't you don't cross the street unless the you know the 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 white light right. is blinking the person. You don't even put your first step no, off the curb because there was a perception that the Tempe Police Department continuously you know wrote jaywalking tickets, so you didn't want to get a ticket. Right. So different cities have different vibes. Is it that the city of Phoenix is trying to get that vibe of hey, don't cross us, don't we're looking, don't cross the street unless we're you're looking supposed for you. to? We're going to write you a ticket to cut down on these pedestrian fatalities potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but does it have the ability to backfire? I think you bring up an interesting point, and frankly, I don't know. Well, and again, if I understand and believe the officers out there who say there aren't enough of us to begin with, right. we run from call to call to call. Do you really think they're going to stop in the middle of a call and go, I need to write that guy a ticket for jaywalking? I would rather have an officer respond to a call, like a 911 yeah. call, than to stop and issue a jaywalking ticket. It's about yeah. priorities. Yes. And I see the calls that they're running to as more of a priority than jaywalking mandated tickets. So I've got a touch of the coronavirus. Uh, I think it's more of a 24 to 48 hour thing, okay? Gosh. We are learning more about the coronavirus, including something that I found a little bit surprising, which might be why we are seeing the numbers that we're seeing. We'll share you that new bit of information coming up next on Arizona's News Station. Arizona's news station, KTAR News on 92.3 FM. Get some perspective. Bruce St. James and Pamela Hughes. The coronavirus continues to be a concern worldwide, even if it isn't a uh, epidemic pandemic here in the United States. But this cruise ship, Pamela, has become like this uh, 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 laboratory, if you will, a microcosm. Petri, thank you. A floating Petri dish. Nobody likes that. The one uh, right off the coast of of Japan, a princess cruise line, where they've just locked everybody on it. The number of confirmed novel coronavirus cases on board this quarantined cruise ship nearly doubling. 65 additional patients, bringing the total number of infected on board to 135, including at least 23 Americans. All right. Among those Americans is a Scottsdale doctor, an Arizona Scottsdale doctor, of which Arizona's Morning News talked to a little bit this morning. Her name is Summer Gunia, and here's what she says it's like right now on that floating petri dish i mean for the most part it's pretty boring i mean we all are in our rooms quarantined there's people monitoring the hallways to make sure we don't go outside Um, luckily i'm one of the passengers that actually has a balcony so i can actually get some fresh air Um, we do take extra precautions to wear a mask outside on the balcony even though they haven't said that we have to do that Um, we're just trying to be extra careful have you ever been on a cruise ship before no 
My my parents. This is this is dissuading me. By the way, <laughs> I'm sure it is. My parents cruise a lot. I went uh-huh. on my first cruise just a couple of years ago, looking to go on another one soon because I loved it. But they always said, you know, get get a room with a balcony because it can be very you know uh, confining. The rooms are small. They're tiny. Yeah, yeah. So if you have that balcony, you can go out. At least and, get outside. And, and, and but why would you wear your mask outside on the balcony? Well, I mean, it's it's extra precaution. Okay. It's one of those things no where I kind of you take what precautions you can. We're both very healthy. They actually have handed out thermometers. We take thermometers in our armpits, which is interesting, hmm. uh, a few times a day. And we're supposed to report it if it gets over 37.5 degrees. Now, let me give you I'm, perspective I'm assuming on that's this. Celsius. Yeah, I, I did the calculation. Uh, that's 97.7 degrees, which is actually below what... Maybe she we said, didn't do the math right. No, I did the math right. You did the math right. Yeah, she said thirty six and a half. I've yeah. seen other reports that below at thirty seven and okay. a half. If it's thirty seven and a half right. degrees Celsius, you're getting up to like ninety nine degrees. This is Fahrenheit. important that we figure out what the number is. Well, you know what? It's one of these things when you talk <laughs> about numbers, they're going to be quarantined. Yeah, for another nine days. Yeah, yeah. Until February nineteenth, nineteenth, Wednesday, a week from this Wednesday. Correct. They're stuck on the boat. But you talked a little bit about why would you wear a mask outside, right? Well, maybe it's because we're starting to learn a little bit more about this virus. And this gets into the whole uh, uh, what we know and what we don't know or what we're learning about the coronavirus. And count me as one that thought it was maybe it should have been a bigger headline, Pamela, Hmm. that the coronavirus, okay, according to some studies out there now, can live, is that what we we refer to it as? Survive. Survive on a surface for up to nine days. Hmm. Nine days. So a kitchen counter, uh, a doorknob, uh, whatever, right? That the coronavirus... Can survive outside the host for like this sounds like a horror movie. This is this was what Aliens was, wasn't it? That the coronavirus can can survive for up to nine days, and that struck me as a long time because other viruses and illnesses I've always heard they they can't live that long. Right. So let's take a look at the flu virus, for okay, instance, let's because that's what we've been talking about. If there's something that you really should be concerned about, at least here in the United States, I'm not talking about folks in China yeah. or on the floating Petri dish cruise ship. But here in the United States, if you're super concerned about getting sick, be super concerned about getting the flu. Correct. Right. Because two years ago, 60,000 people in the United States died from the flu. That is a true threat. Serious. We've had zero uh, folks in the United States die from coronavirus again perspective. But as you put it, Bruce, the coronavirus researchers are now saying can last on a surface like metal or Mm -hmm, glass mm -hmm. or plastic for up to nine days. That sounds like a lot. The flu is capable of like being transferred to your hands, Mm -hmm, like you mm -hmm. touch a doorknob or something like that, a hard surface for 24 hours. So this is decidedly different. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why, again, this just gets into the what we don't know about it and what we are learning about it. And it might be why we're seeing the infection rate starting to creep up if this is true, that someone, because we know now that the symptoms mirror other symptoms of, gee, I just don't feel well, and you can be a carrier and you could be contagious and not fully be aware of it yourself. And then everything you touch, sneeze on, cough on or whatever, that this virus can live up to nine days. 
again, this sounds like a horror movie. It doesn't sound good, that's for sure. And the other headline that has been kind of making the rounds this weekend is that the coronavirus has now killed more people than SARS. Okay. The SARS uh, outbreak killed 774 people in 2002 and 2003. The coronavirus really has only been around this year. I think the first case was was found in like late like late the December, 30, yeah, yeah, like the thirtieth of December. So let's just go with twenty twenty yeah. here. And fatalities have already topped nine hundred. Mm. So when you read a headline like that, I can understand where it would be scary. Um, but we also have to keep in mind that even though they're saying what forty thousand people or so yes. have been infected around the the world, it's probably a lot more than that. It a has lot more people have been infected than 40,000 because in those numbers, it's only the folks who are going to the hospital. It's only those who are truly sick and need help or on a cruise ship taking their temperature in an armpit, armpit like we heard from the Scottsdale surgeon on the ship there. The word of it. But so the fatality rate is something that we're, we're trying to understand well, when you have we don't even know how many people are infected. We have this many deaths. Uh, but. So how, what is the fatality rate? Then then the next question becomes, how how transparent do we think China is being well, with my that fatality point. rate? And, and my or point is rather my point is that no matter what the numbers are, we have to assume that, again, the majority of those infected and the majority of the deaths have happened in China. How accurate and transparent is China being with the rest of the world? And I just don't assume that they are an open book on this. And that's why what's happening on that cruise ship is very interesting. Yes. Because it yes. is 3,700 people on a floating Petri dish Locked in. that China has no control over. Nope. We're seeing how that virus is spreading. We're seeing how it's acting. And I think a lot of people are looking at that ship more so than how China is handling it. Quick question. Are you married? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Do you sleep in separate beds? No. We're not the Brady. Well, the Brady Bunch even slept in the same bed, but Lucy, uh, Lucy and they, Ricky didn't. Ricky and Lucy said, we're finding out a lot of you out there, married couples sleep in separate beds. But why? But why? We're talking about it next. Tell me where you sleep last night. Arizona's news station, KTAR News on 92.3 FM. Bruce St. James and Pamela Hughes. So... Acknowledging that I am not the married one, nor have I ever been. And quite honestly, at this rate, it's probably not going to happen. (laughs) Um, But I was under the assumption, and I've always been under the assumption, that being a married couple meant sleeping in the same bed. Usually. Okay. Yeah. Like, it's just part of being married. It goes Mm -hmm. along with, like, a ring, Mm -hmm. you know, and a joint bank account, whatever, (laughs) right? You know, that it's just part of the gig. So count me as one that found out that nearly... 25% 25% of you married couples out there do not sleep in the same bed. You sleep in separate beds. My mind is blown. I, I, it's probably higher. Really? I think that there might be people that just don't feel like explaining their decisions. So they just, <laughs> this isn't happening. I don't okay. need to tell you what's going on. Yeah, it is com- somewhat of a, a startling number. You know, at least 25% of married couples sleeping in separate rooms. Now, why is that? Well, mm-hmm. A lot of the reason is because one partner may work a different schedule. Right. So the idea that everybody works nine to five is a falsehood. We're all getting up at 730 or whatnot. There was a period of time where my husband, Chris, worked compressed work weeks and he was working like six p.m. to six a.m. And on his days off, I mean, he didn't 
come to bed until like, oh my gosh, like the wee hours of the morning and it kept waking me up and it was disruptive to my sleep. Got it. Got so it. I get how like shift work can impact your spouse. Sure. You're being considerate in that sense where if you're the one that has to get up at three in the morning or whatnot, you say, well, I'm going to sleep in the guest room or whatnot so that I don't wake you up. Okay, that, I, I, I guess I can understand that. Because I always assumed that if a married couple were sleeping in separate beds, one of you was in trouble. It's usually the guy and he's sleeping on the couch. Or that you're headed t- towards divorce. Ooh. Yeah, right? That, okay, that's the okay, other aspect yeah. of it. The, the, another reason why we're finding out that more and more married couples are choosing to sleep in different rooms is because one partner snores or has Uh-oh. restless like leg syndrome. They're constantly moving and kind of, you know. Kicking you in the middle right, of the night. Right, right. Oh, boy. And, you know, like, I, and, and I get this one as well. Um, you know, my husband, Chris, at times is saw on a couple logs Uh-oh. and let me tell you sleeping with an earplug sucks <laughs> so you know i constantly am like pushing them and he's like oh, what are you doing you. what are you laughing. doing yeah why are you like you're snoring me? again like enough already man didn't wake me but i, I think that for me and it, it, it's just you know my relationship and i'm not passing judge on, uh, judgment on those who've decided to you know to sleep in different rooms I think that like you know, marriage isn't easy. There are a lot of times where it becomes difficult, and when, especially when you're raising kids and you both have careers, you can become ships passing in the night. And at times, it can feel like you're roommates. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. have your responsibilities. I have my responsibilities. We coexist under the same house. Ouch. But when you're, but you 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 sleep in the same bed. You know that that's where there's you're this kind commonality of commonality. Yeah, still. yeah. Bond. You kind of reset, and there's that bond. If you take that bond away, then you really become roommates, right? And I think that there, you, the only reason you know there's somebody else in the house is because the milk was drunk, and somebody put it back in the thing with just that much in it. Come on, or they left the lights on. You're like, come on, oh. turn the lights off already, do will you? Ya? Do you fight about the uh, toilet seat? No, Chris is excellent at that. He's been trained. Yeah. Okay. Why is it my responsibility to put it down and not your responsibility to put it up or other way around? Why is it my responsibility to move the seat? The re- you really want to know why? I want to understand because why it falls upon me. Because if it is the me. dead of night, it's uh-huh. three o'clock in the morning yeah. and I woke up because I got to go. I'm supposed to keep go. you from falling through. Yes. Really? Yes. Okay. In fact, my dad has a problem with this. He yeah. comes to my house and he le- leaves it up. Obviously, oh. my mom hasn't trained him very well. He's not trained. And <laughs> Riley's like, why does Pap do that? Why does I, I fell in the toilet, mom. I fell in. And I'm like, you go tell your grandfather that because his granddaughter getting her tushy wet in the toilet will motivate did, him to put again, the seat down more so to, than What me. does it say that you guys don't know to put it down, but it's my job? Anyway. I just never figured that out. I was like, is this a 50-50 deal? No, it's no, not. it's not. No, put it down. Got it. All right. You put it up, you put it down. That's how that goes. <laughs> but I wonder, you know, why, why, I why need a, you... I need a separate bedroom. <laughs> I need my own bathroom. separate bathroom. I need my own bathroom. Right? You need your own bathroom. But I, I'd like to hear from our audience. I, I'm wondering if you have decided, and this isn't judgment, I'm, I'm genuinely mm-hmm. interested... Why have you decided to sleep in separate rooms or would you be open to it? You know, maybe your spouse snores, maybe you work different schedules. You know, the other thing, too, when Riley was little and, you know, I was home on maternity leave and Chris was working, you know, I was up and down and up and down and up and down. And I think that that's one reason why, you know, a lot of couples will will have like a day bed or something in the kid's room. So Mm. they like, you know, you're not disturbing your, your, your spouse because we also have seen so much research 
about how sleep is critical to your productivity, is critical to your mental health, yes. critical to your energy level. Yes. And we are starting to get that message and we're prioritizing sleep. But if you've got a partner that's constantly disrupting it, you got to make some changes potentially. Yeah. Give us a call on the open mic line. Ooh. I'd love to hear from our audience, people who may have decided to sleep in separate did we, beds. Did we leave are any open reasons out? Yeah, give us a I call. 602 200 2733. That open mic line brought to you by Carol Royce Team, your home sold guarantee, or Carol Buy It Herself. Go to carolsthebuyers.com. Is it Dolly Parton sleeping single in a double bed? I have no, I'm not that old. By the way, that wasn't uh, how she sang it. I want to emphasize. <laughs> it was not the, that wasn't even the key. That's, just, that's how it just sounds in kind your head. How, in my okay. head, how it sounds. The Iowa caucuses are finally over. The New Hampshire primary is tomorrow. But it's I, it got me wondering. The more I hear voters talk, the more stupid I think this process is. I'll explain to you. I think we should do it. Coming up next on Arizona's News Station.